Hello, my name is Luke Morales, an MS2 at SUNY Downstate. And my name is Caddy Wu, also a second year medical student at Downstate. And we are your hosts for this episode of Between the Lines. The topic of today's episode is healing justice. So Caddy, why don't you explain a bit about how we came to this concept for a podcast? Sure. So we started with our curiosity about non-allopathic medical practices. So I grew up in a household which practiced what we now call in modern medicine, traditional Chinese medicine. And in addition to the typical ibuprofen and peptobismol pills, which I took for various illnesses during my childhood, I also took many herbal pills and traditional remedies that have been passed down through my family for years. My upbringing prompted the idea to start looking into what we call alternative medicine. However, through the course of our research, we ended up becoming more focused on a field called healing justice which is briefly various forms of healing directed at complex grief and trauma caused by injustice, such as issues of gender violence, racial inequity, social marginalization, and police failures amongst others. We will go into a lot more depth on healing justice in the episode, of course, but uh, you can tell just from this definition, it's a powerful, complex topic. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And while we were researching this topic more on our own, we realized it maybe had some overlap with our original idea of traditional medicine or alternative medicine. Luckily, we came across the work of one of the pioneers in this field of healing justice, Kara Page. Ultimately, we wanted a guest on this episode who not only understood the practices of traditional medicine, but also its intersectionality with allopathic medicine. Kara fit that role perfectly. She really is an incredible thinker with very eloquent ways of explaining things. But I'll let you all come to that conclusion on your own in a few minutes here. So I think we've explained how we came to choose healing justice as a theme for our podcast. We still talk a bit about traditional medicine, but now there is more history involved and a slightly different lens to look at it through, and a more expansive topic. Luke, I think you told me that you actually have a bit of a story to tell that might help set the table for the interview. Yes, thanks for leading me in, Caddy. Uh, since this episode's theme involves some historical events, I decided it would be cool to start it off with exactly that. Have you ever heard about Edward Jenner and the milkmaid vaccination story? I have. I think it's a story taught pretty frequently in schools as the classic serendipitous anecdote of a scientific discovery. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it was part of the curriculum at one point. Um, I'd like to retell it now, but with a little twist. Mm-hmm. All right, so throughout the history of medicine, physicians and medical practitioners have tackled some incredibly large public health issues. There have been failures, of course, but there have also been stories of triumph. As with any great victory, some of these triumphs have been told and retold to the point of entering medical lore. Some of those stories, arguably the greatest medical triumph ever, is the story of the smallpox eradication. Now, smallpox is the only infectious disease to have been eradicated in human history. Prior to its eradication, it had a 30% mortality rate, and those who did survive were often left disfigured or blind. There was a devastating disease that plagued humans for centuries, even tracing as far back as ancient Egypt 3,000 years ago. All right, Caddy, tell me if this sounds familiar. The story goes that in 1796, an English doctor named Edward Jenner supposedly noticed a peculiar trend among milkmaids. Many of them were protected from smallpox and those who did get it had a very mild case. After some investigation, Jenner realized that those milkmaids had previously been infected with cowpox, a similar but much less deadly disease. So Jenner proceeded to use his knowledge and inoculate a young boy by the name of James Phipps with cowpox, thereby preventing smallpox. And this is recognized as the first vaccination in history. 
Yeah, it's a classic anecdote on the discovery of vaccinations. I think we learned about it as a way to frame the scientific method. Exactly. Well, this is the part of the story when a storyteller would tell you the epic history of further vaccine development, trial and error, with the culminating climax of eradicating an entire virus. But I won't do that here. In fact, I want to go backwards in time from that vaccination to what laid the groundwork for that climactic ending. The full story actually starts a bit earlier. In 1706, the protagonist of this story isn't even a doctor, but rather a slave, one Simons. His true name isn't known, only the name given to him by the slave owner, Cotton Mather. So Mather and one Simons lived together in Boston during the time that smallpox was making its way through the States. One Simons discloses to Mather that he knew how to prevent smallpox through, quote, undergoing an operation which gives something of the smallpox and would forever preserve him from it. That technique one Simons described is the first documented description of something called variolization, a technique common in Africa. In this technique, pus from an infected person is rubbed into an open wound on a non-infected recipient's arm. This would activate the recipient's immune system with a weakened version of the infectious agent, thereby leading to future immunity. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Well, in short, variolization started to become popular once the method was proven to reduce the deaths of smallpox to 1 in 50. So how does all this tie back to Jenner? Well, we need one last character introduction. John Fuster. Fuster was a doctor in the 1760s whose work focused primarily on varialization of patients using that technique. In 1768, he met with two brothers who had been varialized with smallpox, but had different reactions, one severe and one not at all. Intrigued, Fuster eventually deduced that the brother that had no reaction at all also had cowpox. He pondered this for a while, eventually discussing these discoveries with peers at various conferences. Among those at those conferences was a young Edward Jenner, a medical apprentice at the time. So it's hypothesized that this conference laid the groundwork for Jenner's later breakthrough with the first vaccination. All right, so what's the point of all this? Well, the basis for one of the greatest medical feats of all time, the eradication of a disease, was made possible because of an African man and his teaching of African traditional medical practices. Moreover, from 1706 until 1796, varialization was the main modality of smallpox prevention. It's easy to remember the milkmaid story, but it's an oversimplification. I'm not taking anything away from Jenner. He deserves his place in the history books. Yet, in science, medicine, and all things that mankind has done, it is important to also recognize the origins of knowledge. So backwards from Jenner to Fuster to one Simus, they all deserve their place in the history books as well. Today, we are joined on Between the Lines by Kara Page. Kara is a Black queer feminist cultural slash memory worker, curator, and organizer working in healing justice for the past 30 years. Uh, we've had a couple conversations with her, and she is one of the most eloquent speakers I've ever heard. So I'll let her introduce herself more thoroughly because I won't be able to hold a candle to her word choice. Uh, so, Kara, would you mind telling us about your background and your story that led you to healing justice work? Yes, thank you so much. It's just really good to be here first with all of you. Um, I've heard such great things uh, about the work that you are doing, so it's an honor to be invited. It's actually been only 15 years. Healing justice has only been as a political strategy. Um, uh, for 15 years, but my work has been over 30 years as an organizer 
in social justice movements, predominantly in the reproductive justice, um, uh, transformative justice. Healing justice isn't a movement, but a political strategy inside of those movements. Um, and, and of course, as an abolitionist looking to build outside of state violence and institutions that perpetuate harm in our communities like prisons and detention centers and psychiatric institutions. Uh, essentially, I am the founding artistic director of Changing Frequencies, which is a newer project that I designed uh, about two and a half years ago to look at the ways we can build cultural memory work or really installations that reclaim sites of immense harm and abuse through the medical industrial complex as an extension of colonization, slavery, and state control. And so most of my work is really partnering with artists, cultural workers, organizers, and communities to find a site where we need to tell story or elevate what's actively happening in that institution so that people know it's an institution of harm as an extension of medicine and how do we challenge um, what the harm is and how can we transform what might be happening there. One example is the shutdown Irwin uh, detention center where we found survivors of sterilization abuse from uh, the global south and really from all over the world and working in partnership with that campaign um, to really elevate the story and the political voice of these survivors and the nurse, uh, Don Wooten, who had the strength and courage to um, blow the whistle. So understanding how to hold cultural and memory work that honors, repairs, and heals what has been occurring at this institution. Wow, yeah, uh, I'm very glad I let you do your own introduction. That was <laughs> very well said, thank you. Um, and apologies for the mix up there on the duration of time. Um, but you, you actually mentioned a couple of, of very you know, interesting words that I'd like to unpack a bit more. So I guess the first one is uh, you talk about cultural memory work. So can you just define what cultural memory work is? Yes, I get this question a lot. Uh, and I do think it is how it sounds, right? Is sort of understanding for us as communities of color, as migrant and refugee communities, as queer and trans and non-binary communities as disabled communities, just so on and so forth. So many ways our stories, our narratives uh, of our livelihood, of our resilience, of our power, of our resistance has been taken from us. And cultural memory is a particular way that we seek to build culture that holds memory in its pores, you know, like not culture for culture's sake, but actually remembering um, institutions or, excuse me, traditions of healing, um, uh, movements of power that allow us to weave cultures of resistance uh, and having, it is what I say, part of the colonialist project to disremember our histories of resistance, transformation and building power. And so for us to culturally, and us, by us, I mean our communities, cultural workers, healers, health practitioners, anyone who engages in being a conduit of memory on how we can honor and uplift the ways we have survived immense tragedy like genocide or slavery, how do we see manifesting memory 
and using that memory to build new cultures, new ideas, new transformative ways of being outside of state control and violence and genocide. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's all very, very important work. And uh, the way you articulate that is beautiful. And I can see why you've been so involved with it for, for so many years. It's definitely a very um, captivating and important thing that you're doing. Um, so we, I talked about healing justice a, a second ago. So I'd also ask if you don't mind kind of defining what healing justice is just so we can all get on the, the same footing here. Yes, thank you. The, yes, the same page. So I want to say healing justice is a political strategy that is so much bigger than me. I want to say that it emerged in the early 2000s as a political and cultural response to, at that time, the just apparent, um, the visceral ways that our communities, and by that, I mean, I was living in the South, my some of my ancestral lineage in the, in the, is in the South and I was organizing in the South and we were experiencing immense policing, uh, anti-Black racism, anti-immigration reform, xenophobic violence, certainly post 9-11, this whole country and well, the world was experiencing increased Islamophobia and violence targeting Muslim communities. Many people talk about now, right, um, or during the last administration, but the last administration was an echo of the early 2000s when there was immense global fascism that many organ organizers and many movements globally were responding to, especially in the global south. So essentially healing justice came out of where do we call on lineages and traditions of healing and survival that have allowed us to survive slavery, genocide, and colonization. And in the early 2000s, gathering healers, health practitioners, and organizers to ask the question, how are we looking at generational trauma from systemic violence and oppression, generational trauma from cumulative decades of policing, and state violence as an extension of colonization and slavery? And what can we recover and remember of our ancestral traditions, of our medicines? And what can we build that are new traditions that always center our collective psychic, emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, and environmental well-being for our collective liberation? And that became healing justice. That became a political strategy that really drew on to the ways we must remember our traditions and create new ones that respond to the immense harm and violence our communities are experiencing. And working with different practitioners, right? Working with energy, earth, body-based healers, working with health practitioners, doctors, nurses, social workers who are inside of systems that don't necessarily reflect their values, but are wrestling with how do we provide dignified transformative care for the collective well-being of our communities towards building power and liberation, right? So not just healing for healing's sake, but actually towards um, interrupting um, care that has been uh, actually essentially not centered our well-being, right? That hasn't centered our communities. It's actually centered white, wealthy, elite, able 
bodied um, bodies as being those that should get care and then the rest of us that should get whatever we can, right? So healing justice was about interrupting that frame. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm actually almost speechless in, in how beautiful that was just said. Um, so thank you again for always being so eloquent and bringing these, uh, these words and this, this wisdom really to this conversation. Um, you, you brought something up here that you actually also kind of touched on previously in one of our calls that, you know, has really stuck with me. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit more. You, you mentioned um, all these different groups working together, different types of healers. And um, one example that you gave actually uh, was Katrina. And so I was hoping that maybe you could speak a bit more on um, natural disasters and its relationship to systems of care. Yes, absolutely. And, and I want to say I, I, I am not from um, New Orleans or the Gulf Coast. I have learned a tremendous amount from organizers and healers on the ground in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, um, Black and Indigenous migrant communities like the Vietnamese community that's been there for many, many generations, um, the Latinx communities, you know, so on and so forth that to honor the cultural memory, right, of that place. Healing justice is always rooted in place. And so we believe that whoever is in need of care or safety must be able to draw on their own communities, right? How do we build the capacity for, for people in our own regions, locales, and place to say, what do we need to design and build to manifest collective care and safety, no matter in the face of something like natural disasters. So in the case of hurricanes, Katrina and Rita, I was doing work on the ground there, had already been in relationship around cultural work, around reproductive justice um, and abolition work with critical resistance and insight women and trans people of color against violence. By the time the storms arrived, hurricanes Katrina and Rita, what, what we knew, and at the time I was organizing from on the ground in Atlanta, Georgia, what we knew is first and foremost, we've got to find our people, right? So as the state was dispersing just all the wrong ideas of how to respond to a natural disaster because they were not uh, facilitating any amount of care and dignity for black and brown people, for disabled people, for elderly people. Um, it was for incarcerated people. It was clearly um, not the storm itself, but the response by the state after was clearly an extension of state violence. It, it was, I, I speak to it as live lynchings on national television. We were watching uh, people just being left to die or people being killed, literally killed. One, one piece of footage of people um, running out of the prison and the state shooting at them, saying they're a threat and a danger to society. In the middle of a flood from the storm, it was horrific. So two things happened. One, you saw an immense amount of response from healers, energy, earth, um, and body-based healers calling on long-term political, cultural relationships in the South. I was getting phone calls from people from all over 
uh, the, the really the country asking, how do we come to New Orleans or um, who's on the ground in Atlanta? Can we then take a trek down to the Gulf Coast? And, and we said, you know, we're pausing here in Atlanta because we're waiting for those on the ground in the Gulf Coast and New Orleans to tell us what they need, right? So that we come in invited and not descending or parachuting onto them because it's such a particular culture and how they might take care of themselves might not be what you're bringing, right? So there were a lot of intentional conversations with different kinds of healers and practitioners. One, what does it mean to do healing work in the Bible Belt? What are you prepared to talk about? How are you imposing your spiritual beliefs um, onto faith-based organizing? Or, you know, just understanding the context of what the Gulf Coast in New Orleans uh, was culturally, but then also, do we know what they need? And from that, finally starting to get in touch with people who, again, rooted in place, were saying, hey, this is what we need. We need dentists. Uh, we need doctors. Um, we're doing healing work based on the cultural beliefs we have. But if you can come, we're inviting people in that we know long-term political trust. Please don't descend on our communities. If you've never been here, then we're spending way too much time taking care of you in this crisis, right? So really understanding that sometimes staying out of the way <laughs> is the best thing you can do. Um, and then from there, many of us also choosing to stay where we were. Uh, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and just uh, honing into who do we have here on the ground when people come, when they're descending from fleeing the state, not just the storm, but really the state violence they were you know, experiencing from police, from the FBI, from SWAT teams, the federal government, so on and so forth. It was mayhem what the state was doing to our people. And so we were holding place. We were holding healing sessions and waiting for folks to come wherever they could get to Louisville, Durham, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and saying, okay, here's some people you can connect to for acupuncture, um, for Reiki, for sound healing, for movement, dance, whatever they needed to move the grief, the energy, the intensity of losing their lives um, from the state's response to the storm. And so I can only say, I can never say enough, the reasons we didn't descend on, for some of us as healers, didn't descend onto New Orleans and the Gulf Coast is because we always trust that they know better. Healing justice asserts itself as being a strategy that allows the people to decide how they want to define and receive care, not based on what the practitioners want to do, but what the community needs and desires to feel cared for. And this is complicated, right? There will be mistakes made. But what we're offering here is in the larger concept of the medical industrial complex, usually we're not given autonomous decisions to decide how we want to receive cares. Sometimes, especially most often in crisis, you just have to take what you can get and it's not um, always safe uh, nor culturally appropriate um, so that sometimes we're risking our own dignity to receive care, right? I hope this is making sense. 
So when we think about how queer and trans and non-binary people were treated during Hurricanes Katrina and Rita and the horrific stories that came out of that, how women of color, Black women and Indigenous women were treated, how refugee and migrant communities were treated and Indigenous communities, right? Based on this assumption of who is perceived as diseased, who is perceived as expendable, whether or not there's a national crisis or a natural disaster or not. Yeah, that, that point that you're, you're mentioning kind of leading into the medical industrial complex, how people and community, uh, the community is no best in terms of the care they need. I think that's a, a pretty important point. Um, and kind of one of the main points that I've distilled from the things that you have online and also just from this movement in general. Um, and you're, you're leading actually perfectly into what I would like to kind of pick your brain on next, which is the medical industrial complex. Um, so you, you kind of mentioned it, would you mind giving uh, more of a formal definition and then talking a bit about um, how you see current medical students in this system? Yes, thank you. I know we've had some, some deep dives on this. So the way that I'm defining the medical industrial complex comes out of years of working with disability justice organizers, environmental justice organizers, abolitionists, transformative justice, labor justice movements, um, and the reproductive justice movement. Uh, so I just wanna say, and I'm also coming at it through a harm reduction lens. So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of ideas that are really shaping my analysis and critique of the MIC, the medical industrial complex, because of immense work done by so many communities um, fighting for quality of care, fighting for better health care, fighting for access to dignified care, and fighting for, as I mentioned, community-led care that doesn't always root itself in a Western-based model. So where I'm coming from in the medical industrial complex comes through a lens of understanding the way healthcare was started in this country was an extension of systems of slavery and colonization was an extension of the ideologies of population control and eugenics, these sort of bigger concepts, right, of defining people by their genetic biological makeup and creating a hierarchy of sifting and sorting bodies, literally, to say, well, who is diseased? Who is um, expendable? Who is criminal? Um, who is going to be dependent on society? And who is going to be better than fit and remain wealthy and elite, right? So I just wanna offer that first, first we're starting there, right? In the 18th, 19th century of how med the medical industry is defined. Um, so what I see is the medical industrial complex is it relies on this idea that the most healthy body is the wealthy, white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, Christian body. Um, now, I'm not saying any of these things are negative. I'm just saying this is what's seen as positive. This is what's seen as healthy. And then the rest of us are compared to this wealthy, white, cis, heterosexual, able-bodied, Christian ideal of health. Everyone outside of that is perceived as impure or sinful. And I borrow that from Sins Invalid, a disability justice performance troupe that wrestles with this kind of idea that disabled people are somehow less than impure and sinful because they are not um, defined inside of that healthy body, 
right? But the medical industrial complex also prescribes who's expendable and who deserves access to quality care based on a Western-based model of care. So if you have any traditions that rub up against or counter Western white-based models of care, then you're out, right? You're delegitimized, you're criminalized. I often use birth working, Black and Indigenous birth working as an example of that because they were uh, or attempted to be decimated as an infrastructure of community-led care led by Black birth workers and Indigenous birth workers during slavery and after, that licensure and privatization of care came for them, right, and saying, well, you no longer can birth babies, even if you've been doing it for a long time during slavery, post-slavery, because now you're just not legitimate if you haven't been through these white Western models of schools. Right When we know doctors came from the North, went to the South to learn from indigenous and black healers and birth workers and midwives to then take it, institutionalize it, privatize it, and then legitimately pass laws that would then decimate the community led infrastructure of black and indigenous birth workers. Um, so that's, that's one example, we could say many. So the medical industrial complex, it runs on money, right? It runs on capital and based on exploration using a very, um, using uh, exploitive at times and experimentation on communities of color, disabled communities, queer and trans communities, uh, migrant communities to build its understanding of how to ensure who is diseased can be contained and controlled and who is seen as well can be preserved. So it really builds off of this idea whose body is criminal, whose body is pathologized, deeply steeped and entrenched in a racial capitalist, ableist, misogynist idea of preserving whiteness, preserving wealth, wealthy body, preserving beauty and desire um, and, and preserving this idea of fit and unfit, as I mentioned, that came out of this idea of eugenics, um, right? Who will genetically survive um, the, the uh, chaos of natural disasters and really believing that white people define genetic, that they are defined by superior genetics and the rest of us are purely here to exist for the labor and reproduction for the white wealthy elite. So big, big concept. And I do wanna give credit um, uh, to much of the writing that's um, out there. Um, her name is escaping me, Barbara. I will look up her last name quickly, but she wrote the first book in the 1970s using this term medical industrial complex. So I do wanna give her credit. Very, very well said. I, hard to even respond to that. It's, uh, it, it's really hard to hear that you know, this is what exists right now. Um, I think as someone who is a medical student currently and was always a, a medical school hopeful growing up, you know, to, to look at it with more of a critical lens and know how, how dangerous some of it is and how even looking at it as an industry is, is tough to, to swallow, but is something so important to understand. I, I do wanna to come to the second part of your question, I realized. And I do want to give again credit to Barbara Ehrenreich. Actually, there's a book, right, by Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich goes on to write several more books, but um, 
it does it does use that term in literally the year 1970, the year I was born, <laughs> about what is the medical industrial complex defined through um, a lens of, of capitalism, right? Um, but to your point, what do we do with that, right? I mean, so many of us are inside of systems that do not, do not honor our values, right? I mean, I know fantastic teachers working inside of an educational system that does not uh, align with their values. Um, there's so many systems, right? Including that system of care that we know has been deeply scarred and marred by these histories. And I, I think there's a lot of layers. It's very complex because we don't have anything else, right? People say to me, well, what are you saying? Take down the hospitals? Like we're supposed to defund the police. And I said, well, let's talk about it. Like, how do you make sure institutions are valued that that community members feel safe to go inside of the hospitals you've built, right? Who are these hospitals for, right? As we're watching the immense closure of hospitals in rural communities in the Southeast and Southwest, right? So there's so many questions to ask about the system of care, but I don't think this is impossible. I think the question is, what do students what can students do to unpack and dismantle these old, old ideas of body, of healthy, of who is diseased, of what disease is? We know that it is deeply entrenched in a racist, classist, ableist idea and notion of health. Um, there's been so many um, popular culture um, shows about this. There's been um, much more, especially during COVID, much more clarity of the disparities and inequities in healthcare that many of us knew already, that students knew in med school, but weren't always able to pull it out and bring, I think, an analysis. Um, it takes risk, right? It's going to take immense risk for students and teachers, faculty, to say, wait, we are not gonna follow by the book continued methodologies that are rooted in archaic ideas of who is healthy and well. Some of it will take, but what are the questions we need to ask about where it came from and who it was defined for and by? And then let's push the paradigm and ask, where are other traditions of medicine being valued? If we're looking at medicine outside of a scientific racist capitalist idea, what do we want to preserve and what do we want to build on? Because there are so many traditions that are still devalued or criminalized because they don't follow the white Western-based model of care. So let's wrestle with those questions as students, as faculty, as organizers, as family members watching our people um, go through these institutions and not experience joy, right? What would it mean to have a joyful experience inside of a hospital? Or, I mean, I have a fantastic doctor who I feel I work with because she honors that I'm doing different kinds of methodologies of care. I'm working with an acupuncturist. I'm, but I wanna say healing justice is about collective. So what we're really asking when we say we want a healing justice strategy is we, we're asking, again, how is care related to generational trauma from colonization, slavery, and genocide? So if we're talking about the current experience of living in a heightened police state, 
a heightened uh, global fascist state inside of a global pandemic where you're relying on the state for care, how do we make sure we are collectively building safety and well-being through a lens of social justice, not through a lens of the state will take care of us through carceral ideas of control and maintain and criminalize? Thank you, Kara, for naming the role that medical students have in challenging the medical industrial complex. As medical students, there are questions that we must wrestle with every day, and these are the questions that we must ponder. In our medical school's curriculum, there are sessions in which we actually speak about different forms of medicine. For example, we talk about the practice of coining, and coining is a form of therapy in which the skin is abrased with a coin to rid the body of negative energies. This is the practice that is well used in Asian cultures, as well as other cultures around the world. And we are taught to be aware of this cultural practice for the proper assessment of child abuse. However, this teaching often comes with the attitude that our patients may continue to practice other forms of medicine as long as they don't interfere with our prescriptions and our treatment plans. So in other words, we turn a blind eye to it. And I feel as we should incorporate our patients' practice of other forms of medicine and bring these ideas into our prescriptions and treatment plans. I believe that these forms of medicine can coexist. However, it can often be very difficult for us to challenge the medical industrial complex within this curriculum, especially when we are being graded and playing within this larger medical education system. Because of this, when we ask ourselves, how can we build better systems of care? and challenge the standard that we are currently in, it is a very big step for us. So I guess the next question is, how can we build a system of care that dismantles this present structure? And can you provide us with examples of holistic models of care, which we can refer to and be inspired by as we continue to ponder these thoughts? Yes, there's so many, and I, and I would love to hear more, of course, what you know about too, right? And what all things that you're building and transforming as students, because I'm certain you are in this conversation. Um, but there's many projects out there and some of them are rooted in healing justice. Um, and again, it's been 15 years since we created this, this strategy, knowing that we were building off of lineages of care models like the Black Panther, um, clinics, the Young Lords, acupuncture, detox clinics for people um, who were substance using. We were pulling on the lineage of other communities who have been immensely, deeply um, building ideas, transformative ideas of care that weren't rooted in a state um, apparatus, right? That were rooted in community-led ideas. And right now, we have seen a lot of people pulling these ideas of care and safety, that these are inseparable. If, your if our people don't feel safe going into a clinic, <clears throat> then there's something we need to change, right? So Casa de Salud, for instance, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, doing incredible work, not just working with individuals, but predominantly with the migrant families they're working with, they invite the whole family in, right? Because care is not individualized because your stress, your trauma, your well-being is deeply in relationship to your family. 
right? For better or for worse, we are connected to other people that are part of our livelihood. So they bring in the whole family and look at the family as the picture to how do we make sure you're all taken care of? What are you doing to take care of yourselves and each other, right? And they work with allopathic medicine. They work with um, different types of healing, herbalism, naturopaths, um, acupuncturists. You can go to their website, Casa de Salud, New Mexico, um, and they are really becoming an elevated, federally funded clinic doing immense work around decarceration. Um, so they're also not only, they are holding healing, but they're also saying if we're not changing and dismantling the conditions that are, that are deeply embedded in causing disease, causing immense stress and trauma on our people, that we're not looking at the holistic response to care. And that is what Casa de Salud is modeling right, is that we are doctors and healers, one, working together when we're not perceived to even be able to be together as a team, but then two, to also look at how will we move decarceration? How will we make sure during heightened moments of a global pandemic like COVID, that we're making sure people who are incarcerated and detained are being prioritized for their care or being released to have care. Um, so that they're really looking at a, a communal systemic change model, which I think is highly inspiring and builds power towards our collective well-being. This idea that collective well-being doesn't build power, I think, is um, an oxymoron, right? Because if we're not looking at our collective well-being on how we're building systems of care that are actually valuing our emotional, physical, spiritual, environmental, psychic well-being, then how will we be able to build power, right? How will we be able to imagine something outside of what we have already seen? Um, there's also other examples like the Latinx Therapist Action Network. I know we haven't talked a lot about therapy, but that is another school of thought. Psychotherapy deeply entrenched in the experimentation and exploitation of black and brown, indigenous, queer and trans disabled communities um, and really at the stake of that is we're looking at a response to mental illness that's heightened during COVID and it's still coming through a racist, classist, ableist lens of care. So organizations like the National Queer and Trans Therapist of Color Network or the Latinx Therapist Action Network who are both training up therapists to decolonize their ideas of psychotherapy to introduce traditions of care that they grew up with that can be integrated with therapy and to imagine collective models of care that don't rely just on the one-on-one -on -one therapy model, but actually how are we looking at groups, communities, movements? How are we talking about trauma and care um, inside of imagining transformative therapeutic models? So those are a few examples. There's so many though. And again, they don't always say we're doing healing justice, but some of them, many of them have chosen to use healing justice as a platform to wrestle with how do we dismantle schools of thought that were never about our people nor ever valued their own experiences as practitioners. So in our conversation so far, we've mentioned the coronavirus pandemic many times now and we're currently still living through this pandemic. And with the coronavirus pandemic being on multiple media outlets, 
daily and also having our conversations about the coronavirus pandemic daily is something that really seems like it's omnipresent in our lives. And I want to now take the time to address the interplay that we've seen between COVID and the pandemic and the medical industrial complex. During the start of the pandemic, we've seen the blaming, shaming, and pathologizing of an entire population. Would you be able to speak further about how the COVID-19 pandemic has played out within the MIC? Yes, yes, and yes, thank you. I've been a partner in a project called the Healing Histories Project. And the Healing Histories Project has been really a project I've been working on for a very long time, which is uh, a platform. It will be, once we launch it, um, an open source tool for community members to see the history of the medical industrial complex. Now, the focus has been through a Black and Indigenous lens, in particular here in the U.S., um, because we're looking at colonization and slavery as the beginning of the medical industrial complex from such um, really violent, um, catastrophic uses of disease to um, commit genocide on Indigenous and Black people, of course, including um, the smallpox blankets used to kill Indigenous tribal nations, and of course, the use of sterilization abuse um, to sterilize uh, women of African descent um, and Puerto Rican descent and so on and so forth. So just understanding the medical industrial complex is not always bricks and mortar, right? It is a philosophy, it is an ideology, it is an entrenchment of colonization, slavery and genocide. So here we have COVID-19 and we watch this crisis play out and everything in my heart wished that medical industrial complex timeline was up and running because we immediately said as all the partners on the team, how do we make sure people are identifying the entrails of eugenics, population control, xenophobia, the ways they catapulted all their anger and rage, I'm talking about the United States government towards China and then the ways that community members in this country targeted Chinese people and then all Asian people. And to watch the rampant increase of violence, xenophobic violence against Asian communities here in this country and also globally um, was such a heart-wrenching reality that this is how we move with disease. This is embedded in an old idea of the blaming and the shaming and the killing and the removal of who you see as the disease carrier, right? We could track this all the way back, right? So many of us were talking about um, the early immigration laws of the 19th, excuse me, or the 18th century, I always switch it, um, but the um, anti-Chinese immigration law, right? That was very much about containment of what they perceived to be both a cultural containment of Chinese people, both an economic containment, but also to see them as, as um, uh, disease-carrying uh, people, as a people. And watching that immense racist, xenophobic catastrophe repeat itself, we had to look at the ways this country has built 
its whole identity around us and them, uh, built its identity around whiteness and other, built its identity around who will economically disband or um, be a danger to our economic support systems. Let's blame it on a whole country and perhaps it will take us to war because of immense fear and white supremacy. This happened with SARS, right? With Africa. This happened with um, HIV AIDS and South Africa and many other countries, but then inside of the US, the ways they were displacing LGBTQ and uh, communities, um, the ways they were displacing during the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, you know, black people, indigenous people, um, African people, Asian people, uh, Latinx people as communities saying, well, they will eventually carry this disease um, sex targeting sex workers like it's amazing to watch how much the Christian supremacy of this culture in this country relies on these ideas of impurity and disease now I say this with the utmost intention I like science I believe in science but we have to unpack and peel away from the scientific racism that notably has been used to build an imperialist country and an imperialist agenda um, by the United States on the rest of the world. And COVID showed it, it showed all of it. And I am both deeply disturbed, yet I see an awakening of communities saying, wait a minute, this was already happening COVID catapulted us into an accelerated version of what we were already experiencing in our communities based on healthcare or based on um, clinics, hospitals, what have you that are closing or based on doctors that are um, not living up to their fullest potential because they are not practicing um, without harm and abuse, right? So let us understand the levels of accountability. Here we are trying to defund the police. Here we are trying to look at police brutality and xenophobic violence against Asian communities and the rise of anti-Black racism. Let's reinvest and reimagine how to do health institutions perpetuate these same designs and models that we need to defund, um, unpack, dismantle, and rebuild. As medical students who are currently being trained under the pressure to perform under certain standards and time limitations, asking these questions is the first step. But then what's next? How do we implement what we are thinking about into reality? Dare I say read? No, <laughs> I know you have a lot of reading. <laughs> Um, but there is some amazing work out there um, that I think is turning medicine, or let me be clear, schools of thought around medicine that can be very constrictive. And this is about using it for harm and abuse. Not all medicine is used for harm and abuse. This is about asking for the accountability of where it's being abused, where it's being misused as an extension of state control, violence, and colonization, right? Or imperialism. But there's books like Fugitive Science, you know, looking at um, antebellum science and looking in relationship to slavery and looking at 
um, the implications of scientific racism, not just for black people, but for, I mean, communities of color. And so we're looking at also uh, the ugly laws, the book, um, more recently put out by um, Susan Schweik, The Ugly Laws, Disability in Public, The History of Disability. I'm gonna guess these aren't in your, um, in your what do you say, bibliographies, right? I know that's gonna take a little bit more um, to build, but where will you assess the risk to take based on who you are in relationship to? Healing justice deeply roots itself in an organizing strategy. So we always say for peers inside of a medical school, don't just run out and try to change it all by yourself. <laughs> like, where are you finding your people that are politically aligned with you that you can wrestle with? How will we be accountable as practitioners that believe in healing? that believe that our families and communities deserve quality, dignified care. And we want to relate it to a global lens on assessing how does healing and health not perpetuate U.S. imperialism or global imperialism or global fascism? How do we not participate in the constructs of care that we're not aligned with, right? I'm working, um, I've had the privilege of working with the Social Medicine Consortium, which is deeply exploring their relationship to racial capitalism as practitioners and really trying to debunk um, some of these old ideologies of care um, through their campaign, campaign against racism. So, and that's one idea, right? But there's, I know that um, the SUNY downstate uh, white coats for Black Lives Matter, you have been organizing immense um, ideas, strategies around the role of doctors and around defunding the police or looking at um, the level of anti, excuse me, looking at organizing for anti-Black racism um, that also incorporates an understanding of scientific racism embedded in anti-Black racism and also looking at xenophobia, right? And its relationship to medical racism and medical xenophobia. So I just wanna say like, these things aren't inseparable. And obviously we're having this conversation because we are aligned at least somewhat, right? Um, in wanting to take these conversations to the street and build action-based strategies that will actually change people's minds and ideas and practices. And I know that in your, in your years of practice, right, when you have to actually go into institutions as you're learning to do the practices that you do that I have deep respect for, I am not going to be a heart surgeon, right? But I want to work with a heart surgeon, right? I want to understand what are the different, I've worked with ER doctors around transformative care models to interrupt violence, interpersonal violence, communal violence, state violence. We need doctors and nurses and social workers um, and therapists who are looking at transformative ways to do this and embrace a political aligned relationship and strategy with organizers, uh, other kinds of healers, and understand we have to move in formation together. Um, because I have been on the other side of it when doctors have delegitimized me and said, what you're doing is not science, it's not medicine, it's not real, because you're focused on a social justice lens. 
And that's because I challenge their racism and I challenge their accountability and their role of power, right? So we have a lot of complexities to hold, but what you are embarking on is so clearly aligned with what I believe will change these systems. Thank you, Kara. We definitely have some more books to add to our reading list. We hope that we can become doctors who will perform transformative work within our medical system and collaborate with our patients on various healing strategies. We hope we can become the doctors whom our patients can trust in their healing. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge today. Before we close, are there any other closing statements or thoughts you may have that we have not spoken about yet? I just think, I think what you're doing is powerful. Like I said, I'm deeply honored to be invited to this conversation. I'm truly an organizer. And the only way we're gonna be able to do this is to continue building relationships to each other. So I just hope that we can build, continue building an ecosystem. Please join the Healing Histories Project, um, sign on to our, our, our listserv, be a part of, we're gonna be doing a training on the medical industrial complex as an institute to wrestle with not only trauma for the communities we're working with, but trauma for practitioners who are experiencing immense harm in their schooling. You know what I mean? Like this, this goes at all levels, especially for people of color and indigenous people pursuing to becoming doctors. The risk that you're taking um, inside of a system that doesn't see you um, is also, uh, can be also tremendously traumatic. So I just invite the possibility of us staying in relationship to each other to build a new ecosystem and to be accountable to each other. This is the beginning of something vibrant and dynamic and imaginative and I think possible. I truly believe we can change these systems and build something we haven't even yet imagined. Wow, so that was an incredibly impactful conversation with Kara. Even listening back on this during post-production, there's so much that I want to go back into to explore. But wrapping up this episode, there's something I want to touch on again, and that's the intersection between medicine and memory work. As medical students, we're often trained to think of illnesses and cures in the context of basic science and mechanisms. That as long as we solve the underlying chemical mechanism, we've healed patients. But we often miss the fact that how healing is defined is so much more. Yeah, it really seems that throughout our conversation with Kara, the message seems to be that healing justice, and part of the reason why it incorporates non-allopathic medicines, really came about because allopathic medicine refuses to address the social context in which it operates. As Kara mentions, the ideas of generational trauma, harm, and scientific racism can really cause distrust of the medical community, and we've seen it most recently play out in the rollout of the COVID vaccine, for example. There's still very much a conversation to be had about the dark history of medicine that I wish we had gotten more into. I agree. While it's true that we have made some progress and the community of medicine as a whole is more willing to talk about topics like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, there is still a lot more ground to cover and self-reflection to do. We often forget that medicine as an art is often subject to the biases of whoever practices it. While the molecular pathways of germs and how they interact with pharmacology may be thought of as impartial and unbiased, what we do with that information and even how we obtain that information in the first place still needs to be scrutinized. 
On a parting note, as students, I feel like it's also important to question our idea that allopathic medicine is truly 100% objective and evidence-based, rather than driven by narrative. It's something that's taught in a couple of our evidence-based medicine classes, but many times data can be manipulated to push for a narrative, whether it's for monetary gain, whether it's to support scientific racism. We should think carefully about how we use data to support policies. That's often a social aspect of medicine that is missed. And from our conversation with Kara, we really shouldn't think of allopathic medicine as the only way to heal patients. While some patients truly do just need an antibiotic to fix an infection, we shouldn't forget that beyond the bio, there's much more to the biopsychosocial model of care. Right. Nearly 36% of patients do engage in some form of cultural or complementary medicine. Because of this, I think it is really important to figure out what each patient's goals of care are and what healing means to them. And if they do interact with complementary forms of medicine, figure out what it is that it's doing for them and how we can learn and tailor our medicine to work in harmony with their current forms of medicine. And that wraps up this episode. A huge shout out to Kara Page for joining us for this conversation and to you, our viewers, for tuning in. We'll see you on our next episode.